two, but we've got a couple things to cover before we get there. So um, first, where's Matt Thomas? Come here, Matt Thomas. Um, so here's what I love about Matt Thomas. We were supposed to do this before the service started, but Matt wasn't here. <laughs> Burn, boom, roasted. Uh, all the little chuckles just meant we got some office fans and this is so good. So um, this is Matthew and here's what you, most of you probably don't know about Matthew. Um, we were joking about it a couple weeks ago. So when we tell, do I stink? You just kind of keep drifting. So when we tell the story about the branch, we always start like January 2014 uh, was kind of the time frame. But what most of you don't know was we actually tried some things in 2013 and failed miserably. Um, but one of the best things about 2013 was after uh, months of berating and praying and pursuing and some spitting, Matt actually joined in. Um, so he was the first one to come and say, yes, I'm going to, uh, you were leading worship at another church in Gainesville. I'm going to come with you guys. Um, this is when Matt was still single. He was not near as cool back then. Now Sarah makes him a little better. But um, so Matthew was one of the very first ones to come with us. And so the earliest days of sitting around dreaming, praying, um, even like uh, these three, Jesus is everything, people matter, your story matters, um, was me and Matthew and Kyle sitting in Starbucks dreaming and praying and creating. And um, everything you see here, the way that things are shaped, the way that, that things are well thought through, 99% um, of that came through Matthew's brain. Um, and so Matthew is one of just, uh, honestly, the, the genesis of where the branch was, was me and Matt just kind of dreaming. Um, we'd had some ministry gigs together in the past. And uh, so when I knew that God called us to plant, he was the first one that I called. I'm saying all this to say um, that Matthew has served faithfully uh, and he's tired. He's been here with us from the beginning. He, he's probably led 48 out of the 51 because uh, we always take one year off or one week off. Uh, one year off would be awesome. Uh, 48 out of the last, or 51 weeks a year, Matt has been on stage leading worship. He's been serving behind the scenes way more than anyone realizes. Uh, and so we started to see this. I started to talk to Matthew, and um, part of the Constitution and Bylaw states the elders have to rotate every five to, year, five to eight years. They have to rotate off for a year, then they come back on. Um, and so when we started saying, man, we need to start this process, that way we don't get to year five and have to kick all the elders off. Uh, Matthew was the first one that came to my mind because the dude just needs a break. Uh, he's been serving so well, so faithfully. Um, and so today is kind of the break. Today is where it starts for Matthew. Um, he's taken a year off at least, and then we'll kind of go from there. Um, hopefully we can go from there. That's up to you. <laughs> but uh, as elder, and so he'll be rotating off. He's also handing off a lot of the worship responsibilities. So Riley, where'd he go? Riley, there he is. Uh, I, would, I was going to announce you as the worship leader, but you told everyone to shake hands. So um, <laughs> Riley was just hired and fired in the same day. Uh, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> no, but Riley's taken over as the worship leader for the branch, which is incredible. Um, so we just want to say, Matthew, thanks, man. Um, all your hard work and efforts has not gone unnoticed. Um, we would not be who we are as a church today without you. Um, so enjoy time with Sarah and enjoy not having to come to meetings and respond to Slack and uh, all that. But we know, I mean, you, you're still going to be intimately involved. Yeah, you, you never did anyways, but uh, <laughs> you're still going to be intimately involved. But we just want to honor you and thank you for all that you've done for us. That's right. I love you, brother. Yeah, that's right. 
A couple more things, and this is already going to be a long sermon to begin with, so y'all just get comfortable. Uh, am I too loud? Y'all okay? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm fine being loud, but um, in the back, everyone turn around, you can look at Matthew again because it's right behind Matthew, uh, is a bunch of baby bottles. Um, I I'm sure you guys have seen, if you haven't, and honestly, we don't have time to go into it right now, but all the legislative craziness going on around abortion and, and women's rights and all that that looks like. Um, so there's a lot of ways for us to respond to some of these things, but the most important is to partner with organizations that are supporting women and saying, no, you can do this. You can be a mom. You don't have to give up. We'll support you. We'll do everything we can. And we're privileged to have one of those here in Dahlonega called Dahlonega Care Center. Um, and so they offer uh, a ton of support. They offer the first ultrasound and, and all these things for these new mothers that might be on the brink of saying, I don't know that I can actually do this. Um, so here's what I'm asking. As we leave today, go grab a bottle, put chains, put coins, point, put checks, whatever you can. Um, but we as a church, I think this is our time to rally around. We can either sit behind a plane and get on Facebook arguments and all this sort of stuff, but more we can put our money where our mouth is and support these women that are wrestling through these choices. Um, and so, like I said, just so honored to have that in our hometown. Um, so if you can, grab one of those. Don't lose it. Don't forget about it. Don't do anything like that. Make sure you bring it back. Uh, but we want to raise as much money as we can for the care center. Lastly, um, you ever had one of those uh, open mouth insert foot moments? Yeah, okay. So when you do this for a living, when you're always talking, um, you kind of walk into those a lot. So I need to publicly repent and kind of mention something that I said last week uh, because uh, my wife and I were laying in bed and I went, oh no, uh, that I should not have said that. Uh, last week, I built the entirety of my sermon based on Anne of Green Gables, right? Anne with an E. I didn't know how season two ended, okay? <laughs> If you're watching, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there are some themes that start to become developed in that, in that show that I had not yet made to uh, when I encouraged everyone to go home and watch that show. Uh, this is the land of the free. You can do whatever you want, but I'm going to publicly remove my endorsement from that show based on some of the, the themes that start to become developed that are not what we would say, or what we would not line to being biblical uh, in any nature. So uh, I apologize. I need to distance myself. You can still watch it. It's, I mean, it's a really cute show. Uh, but there are some, it, it, yeah, just watch the end of season two and you're back. Yep, that's what he's saying. So uh, Luke 22 is where we're going to be, um, and, and to this morning, we're just kind of looking at this one sentence. We're going to read a bunch, but we're looking at this one, one sentence, this one uh, idea that Jesus throws out that totally changes really the trajectory of, of, of everything. Uh, and for, for us, I know we probably all have these moments at some moment. Uh, I've shared before when we were praying and, and seeking where we were going to go plant churches, uh, we, my wife and I flew out to the Northwest and um, kind of did a big is this keep cutting in and out? Can someone bring me some batteries? Cool. Um, see, look, Matt hops up because he's such a servant. You don't have to anymore, bro. <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, nope, not you guys. Uh, so anyways, drove up to, or flew out to the Northwest, made a big loop, was praying and considering. I fell in love with Corvallis, Oregon State University, home of the Beavers. Just a beautiful, they called it the Mayberry of the West. Um, that's kind of where I was thinking, we're going to plant here, we're going to move our family here. At that point, we only had Auburn, so moving was not as daunting as it would be today. Um, so 
finished up the trip in a town called Pullman, Washington with the godfather of collegiate church planning, a guy named Keith Weezer. And so as we're sitting there talking over dinner, I'm talking about deer hunting and things we do in the South and pickup trucks and coal or skull and all that kind of stuff. Um, he looked up at me just kind of as we were eating dinner and said, man, you don't belong here. And then just kept eating dinner. Okay, uh, cool. So we kept talking, went to his house, spent the night, uh, went to their church the next morning, hopped on the airplane, flew home. And as we were wrestling and praying, that, that thought just kept like just being beat into my soul. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. And so the next couple weeks led into the next couple months, and we said, yeah, I think Keith is right. We, we don't belong there. We're going to plant here. And I can't tell you, I mean, especially this morning, uh, almost every time we host MCs, when, when we see baptisms takes place, all that thing, all of that, those moments kind of wrestle to, thank you. Uh, I'm going to finish my point, and then I'm going to change these. Where's my point? Oh, no, just kidding. All those things, every time great things start happening here at the church, those, that thought keeps coming to my mind, I don't belong there. And if it wasn't for just this subtle shift in my thinking, based on what Keith Weezer said, I don't know what our life would be like. But now I celebrate the fact that we don't belong out there, we belong here. And it came from a simple sentence that changed the trajectory of our lives. And so what we're going to see this morning in Luke 22 is just a simple sentence that's changed the trajectory that at that dinner table, I didn't understand what Keith was saying to me. And at this dinner table, the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying to them, but they're about to see, they're about to see the fruit of what's happening. So um, Luke 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. So you guys just flip for a second while Are we in Boston? Back right now? All right, Luke 22, you ready? All right, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us to prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten said, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them, could do, which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
So this morning, we're going to center around verse 21. Or verse 20, excuse me. This is the cup which is poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. So let's pray. And Father, as, as we prepare our hearts, God, would you speak to us? Would you show us the truth of Scripture? Would, uh, would you take all the distractions of what's going on in our minds and our hearts? Uh, Father, would you rid us, rid us of all of those thoughts? And would we hear from you? Would we see your Scripture clearly this morning? And God, because we all know that we're wrestling with different things and different thoughts, and, uh, Father, but we desperately just need to hear from you. So Jesus, do what only you can do in us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you guys have been with us, we're slowly but surely just kind of teaching and working our way through the book of Luke. And it's actually timed itself pretty awesome. We're going to have our first ever Good Friday service on Good Friday. And so that night we will preach through the death of Jesus. And then on Easter we'll preach through the resurrection. And we'll finish up a couple weeks later. Uh, but here's what we need. This is Thursday afternoon evening, right? So Jesus is about to be betrayed after this. He's about to, to, with the kiss, he's about to get arrested. All of this is going down and he's dead on Friday. So we're seeing this take place literally hours before his death. He's bringing his disciples together and they're having this last Passover feast together. Now there's a whole other sermon that I wish we had time for <clears throat> with the provisions of how Jesus lined all this up to take place. That this stranger's house, I don't know how all of that worked out other than um, God's providence that they were able to come to this man's house and have a Passover feast there. He sent out just two of his disciples because everyone was looking for Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted him dead. So they had to go, Peter and John had to go set everything up and then um, by disguise, I mean, just to sneak into this place, his disciples hid Jesus to go have this last Passover feast because it was not yet time for him to die. So they come up to this upper room to celebrate Passover together. So while all of Jerusalem or all the, the Jews have come into Jerusalem to celebrate this last Passover feast together. Now, Passover, we read it, we kind of have a general idea of what it is, but, but it's crucial here that we understand Passover or else we're never going to understand the words of Jesus about the new covenant coming for us. Um, so we know if you, anyone grew up in church? All right, so we, we've understood this. We've read the Exodus. We've read the Bible stories of all that took place that the, they were being captive. The Israelites were being held captive by who? Pharaoh, right? So he was, they, he had enslaved all of them. And so Moses went up, let my people go. We sang about it. We even like dressed up in skits and put it on the felt board. We understood all of this. And Pharaoh just refused to, refused to, refused to, because biblically they would say, uh, the Bible would say that his heart was hardened to that. So then the plagues started coming in. I mean, I'm talking frogs and lotus and just crazy things were taking place. And finally, Pharaoh said, okay, enough's enough. Because it came, the last plague, right? The angel of death came through and killed the firstborn. Unless what? Unless you took the lamb and you sacrificed it and you put the blood of the lamb across the doorpost. Then the angel of death would pass over that house, your, your firstborn would be okay. So that next morning, we, we see the power, we see the supremacy of God and how serious he was to Pharaoh to let these people go. 
And so since then, the Jews have celebrated. They've looked back and said, look what God took us out of. Look how he freed us from, from slavery. And so they, they celebrated through the Passover feast. And that's where we are. That's what we're doing. They're celebrating this. But there's a simple principle that we learn from the Passover, right? That to be delivered from judgment requires death. That to be delivered from judgment, to be saved from that, required the death of the lamb and the blood to be spilled out. But what we also see is that there can be a substitute death. That it didn't have to be the firstborn. It didn't have to be family. That there could be a substitute to take that place for you. Hebrews 9.22, a New Testament book, puts it this way. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we see this very clearly. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, every year they would get together, the Jews would get together and celebrate God's goodness, how he freed them from slavery and how they practiced Passover. So this is the setting, this is the context of the meal that we're having, that they're looking back and saying, look how faithful God was to us then, and he's still faithful to us now. And how did they celebrate? They feasted. They are Baptist, right? They had so much fun eating together. And this was a long meal. I mean, this is where they would get together. That was kind of like, a, I'm, I'm learning more to be Southern Baptist. That's like my, oh, we're all Baptist together. Uh, so they're learning and grow. No, they're not learning. They're sitting and they're celebrating. They're savoring. I mean, this isn't a quick meal at Chick-fil-A. This is hours upon hours. And the tables that day would look like a kind of a U-shaped. And there would be a big table in the center. And when they would come together, their feet would be away from the table, their heads would be at the table, almost in a laid down position, and they would celebrate, and they would remember, and they would pray for hours upon hours. And whoever the head of the household would be would usher in all these traditions of, of prayer and thanksgiving and when to serve the meal and, and what to discuss as they were eating. So they were there for literally hours enjoying this meal together. According to Jewish tradition and history, there had to have been at least 10 men at this feast and no more than 20 because Exodus would outlaw. They had to eat the entire lamb in one sitting, right? So this is like the earliest food challenge that was going on. They had to have at least 10 because uh, none of the lamb could be wasted. So as they're sitting, as they're celebrating, even though Judas is literally sitting next to Jesus about to betray him, Jesus is ushering in prayers of thanksgiving. He's sitting, he's reminiscing, he's enjoying all that's taking place. But we're about to see a huge transition that they're just not going to get. Luke 23:20. This is the cup that's poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. So what we see here in trying to understand and wrap our minds around, this is the final Passover meal. Is this still skipping in and out? Man, I'm just, I've got so much energy in me, but the battery pack. Do I need to use a handheld? Good. Bring me my sword. I need that back though. For you. <laughs> Test. Is it good? All right, we're about to put the house down, right? All right, so um, we're getting into Luke 22, 20, and likewise. After they had eaten, the cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant. The final Passover is now the first communion. In this moment, Jesus is about to change everything. And here's where, if I can just lay my cards on the table, let me be really honest here. Um, I have had a hard time preparing this sermon. 
because I just don't think that I can adequately explain the power of what takes place at this dinner table. I think that all that we have seen has been the new covenant. So, so the power that takes place here and the fundamental shift that happens at this table going from the old covenant to the new covenant, I just don't know how I can put into words the power, the majesty, the substitutionary atonement, all that takes place, all that Jesus is saying, but it brings me good company because the disciples didn't either. I mean, Ricky's going to be preaching for us next week, and right after this, they jump into who's the greatest. Right, so right after Jesus drops the bomb, here's the new covenant. I'm changing everything for you, for Christianity, forever. What do they do? They start arguing about who's the best. And so as we wrestle with this today, I just, I just want us to see a few things. We need to understand what is the old covenant, what is the new covenant, and then understand the importance of why we take communion every week. Why did Jesus invent this for us? See here, verse 16. Go with me to chapter 22, verse 16. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I will never eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. This is strong language. I will never, ever, ever, is what Jesus literally said. I will never, ever, ever eat again until the kingdom has been prepared, has been fulfilled. There will be a wedding feast where we will feast again together, but I will never, ever, ever eat again. That I must suffer, that I must die. It is the last Passover. So flip with me, there's going to be two major flips happening this morning. Hebrews 8, but first Exodus 24. Now flip with me to Exodus 24. So basically, close your Bible, open it back up, second book, there you go. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus 24, because we have to wrap our mind around that there's a shift taking place. What is the shift coming from? What is it going to? Exodus 24, we're going to see this old covenant that he's talking about. So for those that are familiar with Exodus, Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 21, 22, and 23 is all the laws that God puts into place. So they would call this section the Book of the Covenant. Right? So all that he has put into place, all that God has spoken to Moses, here's the laws, here's the commandments for you to follow. So this is where we pick up all of those that have just been given to Moses. So we're going to pick it up in verse 3, Exodus 24. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it on basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in hearing of all the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there's a couple things that we need to see here taking place to understand the old covenant. One, we need to see the emphasis of sin. 
that sin requires death. And we understand this. We, we get this, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So the seriousness of sin means that there must be death, but not only death, there must be bloodshed for that. That that sin must be covered. So he gives them all these rules and all these laws to follow. And, and when you don't, there must be atonement. There must be something covering that sin for you. And this is where the, the sacrificial atonement would come in of different animals. And it's a, it's a gut-wrenching process. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to offend or go too far. Uh, but if you would go read through Leviticus and, and where God is giving man instructions for how to sacrifice animals, it is disgusting, it is vile, and it is dirty. And we need to see that to understand how serious God takes sin. That he can't just overlook it. That sin is so serious that we see that through the sacrifice of animals. How much God hates sin. Why? Because sin separates us from him. So he is so serious about sin that he induces the sacrificial system. That if you follow these rules, you're good. If you don't, here's what you must do. This is the old covenant. Now we can already see some problems with this. Because the covenant focuses on people obeying laws. Are we, are we good at that? No. So it begins to fall apart from the beginning because there's no way that we can do this. The whole point, as David would, would sing the Psalms, focusing on the law, the whole point of the law is that we cannot keep it perfectly. So, so what is Christ saying then to us as far as the new covenant is determined? So flip with me over to Hebrews 8. We're almost done flipping. Flipping me to Hebrews 8. And just sidebar, as we're flipping, there's, there's two reasons. Uh, one, I want you to see this for your own eyes. I want you to continue to study this. Uh, but two, it's good for us to, if we're coming to hear the word taught, it's good for us to flip through and, and find some of these books that we might not be familiar with and spend time in them. So Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. The author of Hebrews is going to start to quote Jeremiah, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, about what the new covenant would look like. So we get a snapshot of what's starting to happen. Hebrews 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Hebrews 8, pick it up in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is he's quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbors and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll be merciful toward the iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one 
obsolete. And which is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant had its problems. The old covenant had its flaws because it was built on man. So God says, no, I'm going to enact a new covenant and it's going to be built on my son. And there's no way you can outrun it. There's no way that you can mess it up. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no way that we can mess this new covenant up. And this is where things just get incredibly poetic for me. So we see Jesus ushered into Jerusalem, right? I mean, people are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, what you typically be called Palm Sunday, uh, which I would argue, and we can talk about it later, it's actually Palm Monday, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so as Jesus is ushered into the city, people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest, here is Jesus, let's celebrate this guy. But you know what's coming in right behind him? All these lambs that are going to be brought into the city to be sacrificed for Passover, so they see these lambs coming in to remember the old covenant, which again, at the time, they didn't know was the old covenant, but they see these lambs coming in and they're saying, these things are going to take away the sin, my sins, not knowing that the true lamb is being ushered in that's going to take away their sins forever. Past, present, future sins are gone underneath the new covenant. But in the old covenant, I mean, can you imagine this life? We're trying to keep track of how many times you've sinned, how many times you've been disobedient so that you can make the correct sacrifice so that you can cover those sins because it's got to be the right animal at the right time, at the right moment, or else your sins might not have been forgiven. And that is a day-in, day-out practice going to the temple, making sure the priests have blessed your sacrifice so that your sins can be atoned for. But what we see here as Jesus is ushered into Jerusalem is the final lamb that's going to take away our sins forever. This is the new covenant that we see here. This is the new final covenant. So now that we kind of have that framework, here's the time for the sermon to actually begin. Just kidding. Here's the time for us to see what is Jesus doing here? Because as he's taking this Passover feast, he enacts, he starts something with the Eucharist, right? So in the Greek, to give th the verb for give thanks is how we get the idea of Eucharist. So when we celebrate communion, it's also called the Eucharist. So this is a table of thanksgiving for us. So as the Jews historically celebrated the Passover feast to remember what God had freed them from, as we take communion because of what the traditions that Jesus started, it is centered around a time of us giving thanks. It's centered around a time of us giving thanks for all that Christ has done. 1 Corinthians 11 puts it this way. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're doing in the moments of taking communion, we'll spend some time talking about it, and then we're going to practice it like we do every week. What we're doing is remembering back to the blood that was spilt on the cross, and we're looking forward to the final consummation, the final feast at the wedding table where there's no more sin. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, where um, sin and death are no more. That's not how he said it, but I can't remember it. So I'm just going to keep skipping over it. When we get to eternity with him forever, the final consummation, the final Thanksgiving table will take place. So we're kind of caught in this already, but not yet. We can look back and see that Christ is atoned for us. We can look forward to expect, expectantly waiting for Christ to come and get us. So what does this mean then? As we start to really look at the elements of the bread and of the wine. Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19. 
And he took the bread in which he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. This phrase, which is given for you, is probably one of the most important ideas of Scripture of all time. As we mentioned before, the atoning work of Christ, the final bloodshed of Christ was it. And it should have been us. I mean, if the wages of sin is death, the moment that we sinned, it should have been us. The bloodshed should have been ours. But when Jesus said, which is given for you, this is enacting the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. And this is where, I mean, as I'm starting to wrestle through this, and I think, I think we just take sin way too light here. I think when we read, which is given for you, and we even think about taking communion, we go, yeah, okay, cool. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Let's go. You want to do Captain D's for lunch? We just skip over the fact so quickly that we are sinful human beings that deserve death. There's no way around that. I mean, we understand that, that morals will not save us, yet we're constantly, if we're pushed on, but I think I'm a pretty good guy. We constantly run back to morals even though we profess in Christ, which we would say morals don't save us, only Christ does. But we're not serious about our sin. We're not understanding or even, I would argue, most of the time appreciative of the substitutionary atonement of Christ because we might think we don't need it. That our sin isn't that serious and I'm not that bad of a guy. I haven't done that many things. I don't smoke meth and kill people, so I'm a good guy. If you do that, that's fine. But... That's where we are lined up, right? So when we say, this is my bread which is given, and he broke it, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our knee-jerk reaction isn't to give thanks. Our knee-jerk reaction is, well, I don't really need it. And this is where the wheels start to fall off for us. This is when we take communion. We understand the sacrifice, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We really have to wrestle with, do I need it? Because the Sunday school answer, of course I do. Of course I need it. Yeah, yeah, I need, I need his work on the cross. I need his forgiveness. But functionally, we, we don't walk that out. Deuteronomy 16.3 talks about this Passover bread and says this way. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of Egypt in haste all the days of your life. You may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So this is the bread of affliction. It's unleavened flat bread because they were getting out of uh, there so fast. They did not have time to break bread with leaven. So they took it and ran. This is the bread of affliction. But God, Jesus is saying, no, now I am the bread of affliction. Now I will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we understand the prophets of the Old Testament, right, that no bone was broken in Jesus. So when we take this and we celebrate this, we don't literally mean that he was, uh, bones were broken, but it means he gave up himself for us. His body was crushed, that he was whipped, that he was abused, all of this for our sin. So we understand how the sacrifices in the Old Testament work and, and the brutality of it so that we would see the seriousness of sin. Why do you think Jesus was beaten and abused and whipped the way that he was? Why didn't he just fall to sleep and never wake up? 
Because God is sending us a message of how much he hates sin. So when we take the bread of communion, we remember that it's afflicted for us. Then we skip down to Luke twenty-two twenty, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for the new covenant in my blood. There are no more requirements for sacrifice. We're not having to keep track of our sin. We don't have to go to the temple to offer all these sacrifices and, and to be cleansed by the priest because Jesus now is the ultimate high priest. This is the blood that was spilt for you. Let me just read a couple, couple passages for us to get this in our minds. In him we have redemption through his blood, Ephesians would say. The forgiveness is our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So how do we have redemption through his blood? Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by blood on his cross. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. So we cannot be made right with God unless there's blood spilt. And this is the new covenant that we don't have to keep walking in this old system that when Jesus proclaimed it is finished on the cross, he literally meant forever. That if we put our hope and faith in Jesus Christ, then the atoning work is done. It is finished forever. This is the new covenant. This is the freedom that we get to walk into because Christ has literally taken it all. I don't know how many of you have grown up in, in historic Southern Baptist churches where hymns were the most predominantly things sang. But if you, I mean, I know musical style and whatever, but go back and listen to some of these old hymns about the blood of the cross and the blood of the lamb and the blood of Jesus because it's powerful. Church, we cannot ever move past this doctrine of atonement for our sins. There, there's nothing deeper. There's nothing, man, like, that's good preacher, but like, give me some more. What is some, this, is, this is it. The reason we preach, the reason we pray, the reason that we're here gathering together is only because the blood of the land that was spilt for us, the new covenant that we are walking into. The reason that we can pray at any moment of any time and he hears our prayers is because of the blood of the new covenant that he took for us. We don't have to worry about going to make sacrifices so that he hears our prayers. He hears constantly, always as Jeremiah would prophesy, that's why his words are in our heart. It's why we are convicted. It's why we understand when sin abounds because the new covenant, this is what we walk into. So when we take communion together as a church, when we remember all that Christ has done, we should not walk into it haphazardly. We shouldn't blow through this tradition like it's not a big deal. Because what we're remembering, all that Christ has done for us on the cross Remembering what is to come at that final banquet table where we get to feast and celebrate face-to-face -face with him. And that we are part of the new covenant. Now, I know that we can argue, and man, like I'm just not really happy or satisfied with how things are going in my life right now, but trust me, it is a good grace that you are allowed to live in the time that you live right now. That we get to walk into the new covenant. And this isn't him making the Old Testament disappear, unhitched from the Old Testament. By no means, this is Jesus fulfilling all that took place here. That Jesus says himself, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. 
The things that we couldn't do, the obedience that we couldn't handle, Christ did for us. The penalty for our sins that we couldn't pay, Christ did for us. He didn't abolish the law by no means. He fulfilled the law perfectly. It had to be him because no one else could live sinless. So with that being said, as we prepare our minds this morning to go participate in communion, remember all that Christ has done and all that he will do, flip with me to 1 Corinthians 11. This is the last flip. 1 Corinthians 11. Because Paul does outline for us in the early church how, how we should behave, how we should think, how we should process the Lord's Supper, how we should process communion as we come to give thanks for all that Christ has done for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, pick it up in verse 27. First Corinthians 11, pick it up, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and have some have died. So when we come together to take communion, because honestly, this is probably uh, the, the number one question that we get and, and what kind of turns people away from the branch is, is why do you guys take communion every single week? Why is it that, I mean, some churches growing up, it's once a month, once a quarter, once a year. Why is it that you guys take communion every single week? Because we've come to give thanks. I mean, what is the purpose of, and I'm not trying to throw shade at other churches that don't, but our conviction here is, what is the purpose of coming together as the church without coming back to symbolically the cross? What is the purpose of coming together and singing in praises and hearing the gospel proclaimed and then skipping over the only reason that all of this can take place, which is the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, the new covenant his blood spilt for us. So we end every gathering with this, and we try to give these short warnings of, hey, look, but, but make sure our hearts are pure in this, because as Paul would say, we can do take communion in an unworthy manner, and there's a punishment for that. So, so what does it look like then as an unworthy manner? The first I would say is if you're not yet a believer, we're so grateful that you're here, but it'd be an unworthy manner for you to take part in a communion that you don't believe in. It would be an unworthy manner for you to say, this is not, I don't really believe in any of this. I don't think that Christ's death on the cross, forgive me of my sins, but I'll do it just because. I mean, early in 1 Corinthians, they were saying, don't eat communion just because you're hungry. This isn't just a meal for us. This is a time of deep confession, of deep thanksgiving for us to celebrate all that Christ has done. So the first unworthy manner would be not a believer. The other one would be unrepentant sin before God. Spend time examining your hearts. And if there's something, if there's a sin between you and God that you have not yet repented of, that you are still struggling with, look, I've always wanted to say, we, this is a safe place for that. If you're struggling, if you're wrestling, if, if you're doubting some of God's goodness and his grace in your life, I'm glad you're here. I would even push you even further, get involved in MC and even further, get involved in a DNA. Have real conversations about that. We're not going to judge you for that here. But 
If you're struggling, if there's unrepentant sin between you and God, I think that would be an unworthy manner to partake in communion. And the last one that we see based on Matthew 5 is there's unrepentant sin to one another. That if you have sin against your brother, if you have anger in your heart, if you had hatred in your heart towards a brother, you have not examined your heart and you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. Go to that person, confess that sin before you break the bread and dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. That there are unworthy manners, so we must examine ourselves. We cannot take this meal lightly. There's a quote that I read this week that just has wrestled in my, or reigned in my mind all week. We see him humiliated yet majestic. We see him suffering and yet exalted. We see him punished and yet innocent. We see him hated and yet loving. We see him subjected and yet sovereign. So when Jesus tells us to do this in of him, he's telling us because how quickly we forget. So when we come together, we have to admit that we have forgotten the truth of the gospel this week. We have forgotten that there is forgiveness for our sins, not just for us, but for those around us. So when we do this in remembrance of him, weekly we're doing it because how quickly we forgot. Martin Luther, for six weeks, preached the same sermon over and over and over again, just a simple gospel message. And finally his church got tired of it and said, what are you, what are you doing, man? You're preaching the same thing over and over again. He said, correct because I preach it on Sunday and you forget it on Monday. This is the importance of communion weekly for us, is that we do this in remembrance of him, because we are a part of the new covenant that his sins have taken away, or his blood has taken away the sins of the world. So I'm gonna pray and, and we can spend time examining our hearts and, and focusing in on all that has done for us in the cross and then we will open up communion and, and you can take and you can remember the goodness and graciousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And Father, I, I feel a little bit like the disciples sitting at that table not really understanding all that you're trying to convey to us. Father, that you have enacted the new covenant, that there is no more sacrifices that need to take place because you are the ultimate sacrifice. There's no earning our forgiveness, Father, because you have forgiven us once and for all. That through your blood, you have made us new creations. Father, how quickly we forget that truth. So this morning as we like we do weekly, line up behind our brothers and sisters. We grab that loaf of bread and rip it off and we dip it into the juice that represents your blood. Would we remember all that you've done for us? Would this be a meal of thanksgiving? Because when there was no way, you created a way. And it wasn't in theory and it wasn't easy or a lofty idea. This was you coming to walk among us, living a sinless life, being tempted in every way possible, but not quitting. And this is you on your knees in front of a court system that is corrupt 
having charges read against you that you're not guilty of. And you sitting there taking all of this abuse and all of the ridicule and all the shame for us. And this is you carrying your cross up to the point of your death, having not enough energy to do it by yourself because all the abuse and the whippings that you have had. And this is you taking the nails through the hands and the feet, screaming in agony with a thorn of crowns on your head with blood dripping down your face. And this is you having people ridicule and mock you as you're dying there. And this is you looking to heaven, saying, why have you forsaken me for the sins of the world were on your shoulders? And this is you screaming out that it is finished. The work of your Father is complete. For your sins have now taken away, the blood has taken away the sins of the world. But this is also you sitting at the right hand of the Father, preparing a banquet feast for us when we come together again. That there is an empty grave. So Father, this morning as we look back and remember all that you did and all that you had to go through, for the atonement to cover our sins. We also look forward to know that there will be a day where there is no more sin, where there is no more struggle, there is no more pain, there is no more death. us that through the disciples that one night in the upper room and you've given us something to continue on through thousands of years to remember the goodness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ so as we take communion this morning church let us remember all that he has done let's remember all the promises that he's given us that if he loves us to the point of death and death on the cross he's not going to leave us or forsake us he's not going to forget about us there's no more judgment there's no more wrath for us because all of it was satisfied on the cross so let us celebrate with a heart of thanksgiving knowing that it is finished because we have a God who loves Father, would you just pierce our hearts this morning? Would you let that set in? Would, would communion for us not be a tradition that we just do, but would we understand the depth of all that took place so that we can have forgiveness of sins? It's only by your blood that we can pray to you. So we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.